All right, what we're going to do tonight is uh, a little bit different than uh, what we normally do. I wanted to look at a video um, that John MacArthur had done. It's largely about issues that we talk about a lot in our church. Um, unfortunately, we should be talking about other things, uh, probably more than this. But right now, this it has become an issue, and it's been an issue in the past. Um, I I, uh, I want to start by saying that I'm I'm not trying to uh, throw shade at MacArthur. I'm I'm not trying to um, you know disparage his ministry in any way. Um, I, I but uh, but I feel like because laymen especially look at him as uh, kind of the go-to guy for interpreting the Bible. Um, I think it's important maybe to look at uh, not only this issue, but maybe how MacArthur tends to put a sermon together, how he actually makes an argument typically in a sermon. And I just want to say I, I agree with MacArthur on quite a bit. I don't necessarily agree how, on how he gets there half the time. Um, but, uh, of course, we also disagree with some things, and this is going to be one of them. So I want to go through this video of a sermon he just he just now uh gave, or at least it was just posted, um, concerning Matthew 5, uh, because we had been through Matthew 5 as well, and, uh, and just kind of evaluating it uh, bit by bit. So we'll go ahead and uh, we'll do that, but let's open in a word of prayer. Father, I pray that uh, you give uh, all of us uh, enlightenment tonight as we critique um, this sermon, not in a way that, uh, you know, should bring dishonor to anyone, but, uh, but in a way that we might discern not just the low-hanging fruit, like, for instance, like a Joel Osteen or Apollo White or these teachers that are clearly false teachers, but even that we might uh, discern men that we don't view as false teachers, uh, but, uh, but they may every now and again teach something that is wrong, or their methodologies may be off. And I pray, Lord, that we're, we're discerning the actual teachers we go to, um, not just the teachers that are outside of our camp. And so I, I pray that we look at this tonight and we're able to humbly... Uh, look at these things, but also critically uh, look at them in a way that uh, will be edifying in the end. And so we just ask that you might be glorified, that your people might be edified, and that uh, this is done in the love of God and the love of you, um, or the love of your people. And, um, and I, I do pray that uh, people will view this correctly uh, as we go through it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, of course, having said all that, I, I do think um, it's important that I am going to evaluate Macar what MacArthur is doing from a scholarly point of view and from a, a, the, a, in terms of methodology, but also in, 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 the, in just pointing out that he'll often go to a text without exegeting it, assume the meaning, and not pay attention to the context, not pay attention to the reference, and um, and then build his argument from there, and then and then go immediately to an application and stories and things of that nature. So um, we'll view that tonight. We'll look at it. I'll try to show you how he does that with Matthew and Leviticus and, and various texts. But let's uh, let's get into it. To turn to now, it's Matthew chapter five, verses forty-three to forty-eight. Matthew five forty-three to forty-eight. 
I'm going to read these words to you and then uh, introduce the direction of this text for us, and then we'll dig into it. Our Lord speaks and says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Pretty direct point. If you want to be like God, love your enemies. Now, I, I wanted to start there. Pretty direct point means you're not going to get uh, an actual exegesis of this text. Uh, it, it's, it's going to be taken for granted on what it's saying. Um, the exegesis that comes is just going to basically not be a true exegesis where something's being drawn out from the passage. It's just going to be an ordering of the passage. So it's going to be basically dividing the passage up into almost a sermon points. Like there's three points that he's going to mention, and he's just going to kind of read them and assume what they mean. And I, I do want to say that I probably agree with MacArthur on the bulk of what he says uh, in this sermon, but where we disagree, I think there's a major disagreement, and I, and I, of course, disagree with, I think, a lot of what he's doing in terms of uh, how to get there. Um, but obviously, we, we, we disagree on the, on the main point that I think he's making, and I, I want you to notice, again, as we go through this, that, you know, there's, there's, there's really an abuse of the Bible that's going on here, and... Um, and I know a lot of people won't like that. I have a lot of friends who, if I say anything about MacArthur, it's just like I dropped a nuclear bomb and everyone is just, you know, really mad at me for it. Um, but I, I would encourage you, if you hold him in high status, that, you know, at the end of the day, you should hold the Bible in higher status than any teacher, no matter who it is. And ultimately... Um, Remember Christ's words that says, you know, if you love father or mother more than me, you're not worthy of me. Well, if you love John MacArthur or any other teacher more than me, to where you cannot evaluate them, you can't put the word of God above them, uh, you're not worthy of Christ. So think of that seriously as we go through. Don't just think, well, how dare you uh, speak against the teacher that I love? Again, I think he's a great man. I think he's done uh, a, had a very faithful ministry. I, I appreciate the boldness that he's had. Uh, as he's, you know, gone on to various news shows and talk shows and all of that. Um, but that doesn't mean he's infallible and, and he does get some things wrong. I suppose in my lifetime and yours, we have not had as many aggressive enemies as we do today at all levels. The kingdom of darkness has become more hostile than ever. So I want you to notice at the get-go, he automatically has jumped from reading the text, saying it straightforward, to assuming that the enemies are the world. Uh, the enemies are the wicked. He's not paying attention to anything. He's not, he, he will not get in this sermon uh, what is Matthew arguing in his gospel. You will not get that. You will not get who is Matthew's audience. You won't get any of that. 
Um, it's just going to be assumed that, that, you know, it's, it's going to be a, a text taken out in a paragraph as though that paragraph just existed on its own. He will make mention of the, the uh, antitheses in the Sermon on the Mount, but not put them together in the fact that they're all talking about, you know, something within the covenant community. Um, that's going to be completely missed, and therefore the application is going to be universal. And um, I want to say this at the get-go, because I think it's important that we have a tendency in our culture, because of the way we are globalized in our thinking and universal in our thinking. I just saw a YouTube video of a young lady talking about how um, all died in Adam, so also all will live in Christ, and how there's a tendency simply to universalize that. So she just read that meaning to mean, well, everyone will eventually be saved um, because the all refers to all people rather than in the context that Paul is talking about Christians. um, And therefore the all is the all were lost in Adam, but the all, the all believers will be saved in Christ. Um, But it's universal. We, we, We bring that context to it. Most of the biblical books are not only written to the covenant community, they're written for and about the covenant community. Very rarely will you have a book written about some other nation or a book written about unbelievers. You do have that sometimes like in the prophets, for instance. Um, I know of no New Testament book that does that, and it's very rare for even the prophets to do it. It's usually the calling out of the nations for the purpose of Israel seeing God's condemnation and whatnot. Um, but... uh, but that means that what's written is, is for that context. It's written to it, and it's written about it. And, um, and we completely miss that when we read Proverbs, when we read texts like this. We, we immediately bring a universal aspect to it to where we interpret it then to automatically mean, oh, well, Jesus is talking about all people then. He's, he's applying this to everyone. And so MacArthur, of course, is going to say that, that this, you know, who's your neighbor? Well, your neighbor is, you know, everybody. Hostile to the light, hostile to the gospel, hostile to Christ, hostile to the church, hostile to the truth. We're going to skip this a little bit. And that hostility is being ramped up at a level we have never seen in our society. We rightly resent the wickedness of that. We rightly resent the legalizing of the murder of infants. We rightly resent sexual perversion in all its form. We, uh, we hate the fact that the role of men, the role of women, the place of children, the family are being systematically destroyed. We are deeply saddened at racial destruction going on by identity politics in our country. We are disturbed by the breakdown of the social order. This is all stuff going on in the world. Um, and, you know, we, we could apply these things to the church because there's a breakdown in the church right now. But obviously, again, it's the global context that MacArthur is laying out because he's going to place that global context over Matthew, which is not referring to a global context. It's, it's concerned about the covenant community and what's going on between Jews and Gentiles. Where we are no longer feeling like we are a nation ruled by law. We are concerned about escalating socialism, which empowers the elite even more and takes away freedom. Socialism and freedom are mutually exclusive by definition. Now, this is from the Sermon on the Mount. And there are six contrasts starting in verse 21. Jesus is talking to the Jews, and he is acknowledging that they have been taught by their scribes and Pharisees and rabbis certain things. 
but they are inconsistent with what God wants them to know. And so you have six times this little couplet, starting in verse 21, you have heard, verse 22, but I say, verse 27, you have heard, but I say, verse 31, it was said, but I say, verse 33, you have heard, verse 34, but I say, verse 38, you have heard, but I say, and then finally down to verse 43, you have heard, but I say. The Lord is making a stark contrast between what He commands and what exists in the apostate traditional form of Judaism. Okay, so we've, we've noted that before, but I want you to notice that what MacArthur just did there, it seems like he's giving you the context, but actually he's not. Um, it is true. All those things he said are true. What he has not done is tell you why Matthew is actually quoting these specific things from Jesus and talking to the church about them. Why, why did he mold his gospel this particular way for his audience? Why, why do we need a Matthew? We've got a Mark. We've got a Luke. Why, why is Matthew writing this specifically for his audience? There's something he wants to say with Jesus's words to a particular audience, to a particular church where something is going on, and he indicates that um, throughout his gospel that something is going on. We're not going to get that here. We'll talk about it more uh, tonight, but, uh, but I want you to notice we're, we're not going to actually get that. The religion of Judaism had flattened God's commands to one external dimension. To justify hate, to justify lust, to justify divorce, to justify lies, to justify vengeance, to justify anger, but holiness is much deeper than that. But this is now, I, I, again, I want to stop this just real quick. Um, to justify, notice how generic those things are. To justify divorce, to justify anger, to justify, um, you know, uh, all these different things that they were, were doing. Well, that's true, but th what they, were, they were justifying them within the covenant community. These things were done against brothers. So the murder of the brother is what Jesus talks about. It's very specific in that regard. Um, the adultery being committed is being committed against your wife. It's not just generically, globally in the world. Um, when you're making a vow, well, who would care about using the name of God in a vow, the name of Yahweh? What would be your fellow covenant member who would care? Uh, it's your fellow covenant member who would trust in that. And so, again, it, it's not just that, well, the, the Pharisees had um, flattened them out. That's absolutely true. We totally agree with that. But they had flattened them out to where they made it okay for them to do evil against the covenant community of God, the people of God, the very people they were commanded to love. And so what they're doing here is they're actually going to be limiting uh, to their own social group, their friends, the command of love your neighbor. Now, MacArthur thinks they're just limiting it to Jews, their fellow Jews, but that's not what's going on. We see that through the rest of Matthew. They're actually doing evil to other Jews. They're devouring widows' houses. They're not devouring like Roman widows' houses. They're devouring like Jewish women's houses. Um, they're, you know, they're, they're putting heavy burdens on the people. Well, the Romans aren't listening to them. It's the Jews they're putting these heavy burdens of rituals and whatnot upon them. And so they're doing these evil things to the people in their own covenant community because they're not their buddies. And, they, and a lot of them they don't like and all that sort of thing. So they're doing that. Matthew is going to apply that to the church context. We're going to see why that is uh, as we go along. But just to let you know, because if you've watched the other video... 
he's applying it to this church context because it's a mixed church where there are Jewish leaders uh, who are shunning Gentiles and perhaps other Jews who hang out with the Gentiles over issues of rituals, which is why Matthew deals so much with rituals. And we know this is happening because one, Matthew is extremely, just far more concerned about talking about the acceptance of Gentiles by Christ than any other gospel is. Uh, he will do this over and over again. He begins with the Magi coming in the beginning. There's a statement of the Gentiles having hope in him. You have eight and nine where like the Gentiles are all faithful. You've got the Canaanite woman who through her faith, she's first rejected by Christ because she's assumed to be a, a pagan, but through her faith, uh, she becomes an Israelite and then she's granted what she asks and all that. Um, there's the parable that's unique to Matthew that is talking about uh, the the people who have been with God the whole time, and then you have these Johnny-come-latelys, which are the Gentiles, and then you have the Jews be angry that they got the same thing the Gentiles got, that they were honored in the same way, even though the Jews had worked the whole time. They've been with God the whole time. And and this, this emerges that there's these, okay, these Jews and Gentiles, so there's a Jew and Gentile conflict. There's a resentment of the Jews toward the Gentiles for some reason, and then we see that it's actually Gentile or Jewish leadership that's going on, that's abusing Christians in the covenant community, and the Christians we're assuming then are the Gentiles they're abusing, and again, maybe other Jews who are going with the Gentiles. We get that all over the place. That's why there's tons about here, like, you know, here uh, people doing evil to you and persecuting you and slandering you and all that sort of thing. Uh, then there's a lot about forgiveness throughout Matthew. Uh, in chapter 24, it's going to talk about Christ uh, telling people to be alert because you don't know when your master's coming, because if he puts someone in charge of his uh, his household to give the children their food at the proper time, but instead he comes back and that guy is beating his fellow slaves, not unbelievers, fellow slaves, he's going to cut him into pieces. That goes into 25 where talents are given, and the talents should be understood as people, not actually like money. It's whether or not people were edified, people were actually growing under that. And of course, the, the, the one guy, he doesn't grow the, the talent under him, and he's cast into hell. Parallel language to what was talked about in 24. And then finally, 25, that you saw me naked and you clothed, you clothed me, and then the reverse of that, you saw me naked, you didn't clothe me, hungry, and you didn't feed me, thirsty, and you didn't give me drink, all of that sort of thing. Um, to the, and they ask, you know, when do we see you, Lord? And he says, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. And of course, this is a rebuke. Who hasn't, who has most in charge of the money? I mean, ultimately, yes, all Christians should give, but it's, it's fundamentally talking about this Jewish leadership that is shunning, and, he, and Christ is telling, don't be like this. Don't be like the Jews that God condemned. And so you have this massive part in Matthew of condemning the Jews, why they're condemned. Uh, the kingdom of God is going to be taken away from them and given to a nation, Gentile, that it you know bears the uh, fruit of it. Um, don't be like these Jews that Christ condemned. Instead, the rituals are not important. It's the morality of the law. Be concerned about that and shepherd God's people correctly, treating them right, accepting the Gentiles in as Christ has accepted them in as his brothers, because Christ is true Israel. That's what Matthew is actually teaching. That's the context, and that's what's going on here when Christ says this uh, to them. Matthew wants to make sure that they know, look, don't just 
uh, draw a circle around your little group of friends and think that you're somehow uh, obeying the command to love your neighbor as yourself because neighbor could be interpreted as friend. Uh, the word the word actually could mean friend. Uh, and so Christ is saying, no, it's not just your friends. It's actually even your enemies, but the enemies within the covenant community, the people who are doing these things, these Jewish leaders who are shunning you, don't be like them. Don't shun them. Um, pray for them. Uh, don't curse them if they curse you. Uh, bless them instead. That's what's actually being said. So anyway, I was going to give you that later, but I gave it to you uh, sooner. I want you to look at the final matter then, verses 43 and following, which I read to you. This matter of loving your neighbor and also loving your enemy. Second great commandment, love your neighbor as yourself, right? And the Jews wreaked havoc with that by defining neighbor so narrowly that it came back down to only the people that they chose to love. Now, agreed, only the people they chose to love, that is, their friends, the people within their in-group, uh, not all of the covenant people, and especially not people they viewed as their enemies, especially not Gentiles now who had become Christians in Matthew's community that he's writing to. They're viewed as enemies. They're viewed as the other group. Yeah, maybe God will save them, but they're not of our group. If you think again of like Peter uh, being bullied into even like not eating with the Gentiles anymore because Gentiles are considered unclean. So the Jewish leaders there were not wanting to eat with the Gentiles. They were separating the groups. And Paul says, you're condemned for this. You're re rejecting the gospel by doing this. Uh, you, you can't do this. And so Matthew has that same concern. By the way, if you don't, if you think that's somehow unique to Galatia, I want you to notice that that happens in Jerusalem because you have the Jerusalem council and you've got the same thing going on. Uh, it happens in Galatia, as we just mentioned. Uh, Ephesians marks it. Ephesians might be actually a circular letter, and yet it's clear that that's an issue even in Ephesians that, that is noted there. Um, in Colossae, it's happening. We know that it happens in Thessalonica, and we know that it happens in Rome with Romans. So all the way up to the Roman Empire, this is a massive issue in the church because the Jews, a lot of them who've become Christians, can't separate the actual Judaism that was of the Old Covenant uh, from the actual the, the the actual core of it, which is Christ and the character of Christ and morality and things like that, um, they they can't separate those things from the rituals, and therefore they still consider Gentiles unclean, and they're having a problem fellowshipping with them, having a problem giving to them, having a problem praying for them, or having any sort of spiritual relationship with them as brothers. Essentially, only the people in their group. They went so far as to say the general population was cursed, and they had legitimized their disdain for the general population, if not their hate. They love their neighbor, all right, if you let them define their neighbor. So let's look at that. We'll begin with the tradition of the Jews, then we'll look at the teaching of the Old Testament, and then the truth from Christ. So let's look at verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. This is the superficial, rabbinic form of low-level theology in defective Judaism. You have heard that it was said, the familiar phrase that introduces the teaching of the rabbis, you have been taught, you shall love your neighbor. And that's a good start. Leviticus 19, 17 and 18 commands that you love your neighbor. Matthew 22, Jesus said, this is the second great commandment, love your neighbor. By the way, they left out as yourself, purposely, because that's, uh, that's too much to ask. 
There is, by the way, no command in the Bible to love yourself. That's just part of your fallen, corrupt nature. You do that by default. The Bible doesn't command you to love yourself. The Bible commands you to love your neighbor as yourself. And how do you love yourself? Well, you ought to be familiar with it. <laughs> what you do all the time. Our love to ourselves is unfeigned, fervent, habitual, permanent. It respects all our needs, all our wants, all our interests, all our desires, all of our hopes, all of our ambitions. It prompts us to do everything possible to secure our own happiness, well-being, satisfaction, welfare, comfort, interests. It seeks just to clarify, I, I think MacArthur would agree with this. There's actually nothing wrong with you loving yourself. It's, it's not a part of the fallen nature to love yourself. It's actually creational to love yourself, take care of yourself, that sort of thing. Preserve yourself in that way. Obviously, it's wicked to love yourself over God and over what God has commanded you. That's the, the issue there. It's our own pleasure and fulfillment. Knows no limit in the effort and secures all this and protection from any harm. And oh, by the way, our love for ourselves is very forgiving. Have you noticed? <laughs> it's a rare person who loves his neighbor that way. So immediately we are faced with the reality that we don't love the Lord God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, which is the first commandment, so we fall short there. And we certainly don't love our neighbor as ourselves, so we fall short there. And consequently, we are all under divine punishment. Agreed. You can take the law in its several parts, or you can reduce it down to Ten Commandments, or you can reduce it down to Two Commandments, and whatever way you look at it, we fall short. The Jews justified the fact that they hated their enemies by adding, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now that's after they had already narrowly defined neighbor. Neighbor was another Jew, another Jew in their group not tax collectors, not the rabble, as I mentioned, John 7, 47 to 49 says they cursed the rabble, the Jewish population in general. So I want you to notice MacArthur points out that it's not, they're not excluding um, uh, just Gentiles originally or, or like people outside the covenant community. The, the the problem with the Pharisees is that they only have their little clique, their only their little group within this huge amount of people that makes up the covenant community, and they're, they think they only need to love this group within it. Um, and so it's not, well, they just thought they should love their fellow Jew, but they didn't need to love the Gentile. That's not the issue. That's not what's going on. And MacArthur notes that, and I, I, uh, I acknowledge that. Their narrow definition of neighbor was somebody in their group. And everybody else outside that highly defined group, they had uh, a right to hate. They conveniently ignored, while they're looking at Leviticus 19, 17, and 18, which says, love your neighbor as yourself, they conveniently ignored verse 34, which says, the stranger who sojourns with you shall be to you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. Oh, that's pretty selective. Okay, so here's, here's where MacArthur goes back. We get absolutely no exegesis, no reference for what the stranger is in Leviticus, and MacArthur simply assumes it means unbeliever. Um, that is not what the stranger is in Leviticus. The stranger in, frankly, the Bible in general, where it talks about the type of stranger you take care of, is the Hebrew word ger, 
Uh, Gare means resident alien. It can refer to a resident alien anywhere, uh, really. It just means someone who resides in the land, but they're not indigenous to the land. They're not a part of the native group. Um, and so many Gentiles were living in Israel, but we're not talking about pagans. We're not talking about unbelievers because it's very clear that in the law, throughout the law, that the Gare is the resident alien, alien who has become a worshiper of Yahweh. So he is a Gentile convert in the land. And it's very clear because he, he actually practices Passover. Uh, he he uh, he practices the law in terms of sexual morality. He is not to engage in sexual morality. He has to observe the Sabbath. Uh, he has to bring sacrifices to Yahweh. And so the ger the ger is a believer. It's just a Gentile believer. He is to be taken care of because he's a believer. He's part of the covenant community. But he because he's not ethnically Israel doesn't get land like the other tribes do. So he's in the same boat as the widow and the orphan, and that's why you see it together. The widow, the orphan, the gare, the stranger. It's not talking about a pagan. When the Bible talks about pagan foreigners, it tends to use the word neker. Neker is a pagan foreigner. In fact, the, the, uh, the common phrase, um, uh, the uh, strange gods or something of that nature, is actually the gods of the neker, the pagan, the foreigner in that regard. And the only way that a Necare can save himself is actually if he converts and repents and he, and he turns to Yahweh. And in that regard, he would then become a Gare in the land. Um, it's very important to understand this because ultimately you, you do realize, and I think MacArthur, I don't know if he's, he's thinking about it, but you don't have pagans residing with the Israelites. They're to drive out everyone who's worshiping a different God. This is God's land. And God has decided that he's not going to have the worship of other gods in it. So they are to purge them from the land. So he wouldn't be saying, yeah, love the stranger among you, love the pagan among you. That's no, the guy worshiping other gods. No, he's not talking about unbelievers. So again, that there's no exegesis done. There's no information about the stranger. I, I don't think MacArthur is even aware of what I just said. It's just a matter of going to that verse picking it out and saying, well, there you go. See, that just proves that it just means to love everybody. And so that, that's what he's going to end up concluding. They took verses 17 and 18, ignored verse 34, which says you're to love the stranger as yourself. And they ignored Exodus 12, 49. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. Now, this is a fascinating thing for him to quote, because ultimately it's just saying then that there's one law for you and the gear and the stranger, meaning they're going to be believers too if they're in the land. If not, they're to be driven out of the land according to the law. They're to be put to death according to the law. And therefore, you're not going to say, oh, well, they're, they're pagans, so they don't really worship our God, but they can go ahead and stay here anyway. That's not what's going on. So the fact that he quoted that verse, it's really odd. Because, of course, then, you would love them in your midst because they're fellow believers, fellow members of God's people, covenant community. You don't have the right to pick and choose. But this hate of anybody outside the group had developed in some very sophisticated ways. There was one of the uh, familiar sects of Judaism called the Essenes. They were kind of a monastic sect. They lived out by the Dead Sea. That's where uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls originated. And the Essenes say things like this, and this is from their teaching. Love all that God has chosen and hate all that he has rejected. 
Love all the sons of light, each according to his lot in God's community, and hate all the sons of darkness. The Levites curse all the sons of Belial. And who are the sons of Belial? Non-Essenes. Okay, so it's really important that, yeah, that that's uh, true. Um, it, it's a debate whether the Essene community and the Qumran community are the same thing. But um, but it's true that in Qumran documents that that is the case, because I think those in Qumran realize that it's talking about believers, and so your neighbor are believers. That actually is a good reference for Second Temple Judaism, understanding that the neighbor is fellow believers. Christ actually has a lot of agreement with the Qumran community. If you read their views, that's why scholars often think, oh, well, you know, was John the Baptist from Qumran? Because he seems to have the same views. Um, they, the, the Qumran community actually condemned the Pharisees. They saw what the Pharisees were doing, so they actually condemned the Pharisees as Jesus condemns them. Uh, he condemned, they condemned the priests as well in uh, Jerusalem. They're, they're the sons of Belial instead of the true Levites and all that sort of thing. So I, I, again, it, it's, you know, it's, it's neither here nor there um, if we just take the information correctly, but I think MacArthur is trying to build a case that, well, yeah, to exclude anyone from the from any group at all is against what Jesus is teaching because I'm going to make it universal, that it's referring to all people, and that's not really what's going on. So if you're not in our group, you're cursed. And this was viewed as a level of righteousness that proved that they really knew the mind and the heart of God, at least to them. So in tradition, in what had developed in Judaism, the command to love your neighbors became a license to hate. One By the way, I just want to point out again, um, not a license necessarily to like wish the worst things on people. That may be true as well. But, but more so, um, the issues of love and hate are about who you take care of, who you have a responsibility to take care of, and who you don't. That's why, that's why it, you know, taking care of people surrounds these things in the Gospels. It's not just a matter of whether you sit, you know, in a chair and you like boil over unbelievers. It's like, yeah, don't do that. That's that's uh, something more than what what we're talking about. One of the maxims of the Pharisees, I'll quote, if a Jew sees a Gentile fallen into the sea, let him by no means lift him out thence. For it is written, thou shalt not rise up against the blood of thy neighbor, but this man is not thy neighbor, end quote. If you see a Gentile drowning, let him drown. You have a right to be indifferent. So there's a correct identification that the Gentile who's a pagan is not the neighbor. That's very clear in the law, in the Levitical law. It's the neighbor is your fellow Israelite, your brother, the fellow person in the covenant community, the person who worships Yahweh. It's very clear. I, I mean, you just have to read the context, which we're not going to get here. Uh, MacArthur's not going to read it. Um, where they go off the rails is that means that you wouldn't, save someone who was drowning or something if they were an unbeliever. And of course, that's that's not the logical uh, conclusion of that. You actually would save them. I would argue for governmental reasons, there's responsibilities we have to general creation uh, because of government. But I certainly wouldn't say the covenant community has responsibility as Christians. I would say that everyone has a responsibility as uh, in terms of uh, creational responsibilities in terms of government and whatnot. But that's a totally different argument, and I don't want to get in that tonight. It is a small wonder, then, that the Romans charged the Jews with hatred of humankind. Now, I thought it was interesting that MacArthur quoted this, uh, only because it makes it sound like, well, see, the Romans, they, they knew that the Jews were hateful because 
you know, um, they, they said the Jews were haters of mankind. Well, of course, uh, you do realize that the Romans also considered Christians the haters of, of humankind. Uh, Tacitus records that, that that was their, their label under the Neronian persecutions, that they were, they were the haters of humanity, um, which is an odd thing. If they're just, you know, loving everybody and giving everybody stuff, why would they be considered the haters? Well, they're haters because they're exclusive. They're actually exclusive to Christ. Love runs through Christ, and it's through Christ that uh, well-being comes and all of that, and, and salvation comes through Christ and not through any other gods, and that's why they were, they were hated. So they were very selective in picking Old Testament texts to avoid what God actually said was to love everyone as you love yourself. So no, that's that's not what he said. And so here here's where MacArthur is switching it. So he just said what the Pharisees were doing was just making the love your neighbor about their little group within the covenant community and hating all the other Jews, the Jewish crowds and the different religious groups and the Sadducees probably and all that sort of thing. Um, but now he's flipping it as though the real problem was they weren't loving people outside of the believing community. They weren't loving everybody, when in fact that's not the problem, as he just said. And it's also not the problem as we just laid out in Matthew. That's, that's not the problem. Matthew's not worried about, hey, you guys aren't loving unbelievers enough. Uh, that's not the issue. The issue is, hey, you're not loving one another enough, and you're shunning one another, and this is wrong according to what Christ has done. Again, Matthew 24, the end of it, what is the problem? What, what do you need to be alert about? What's the issue that Matthew is concerned about? And he's warning them. If Christ comes back and he sees you beating your fellow slave, you will be cut to pieces. He doesn't say if he comes back and, and you're beating someone else's slave or, or you, you know, you're, you're beating someone who's like an unbeliever. It's No, it's your fellow slave that you're beating. And of course, that's all parallel as we go down to 25. And, it, and the, the fellow slave is a brother of Christ, even one of the least of these brothers of Christ, uh, the true Israel. So again, uh, MacArthur has kind of bait and switched it with us in making it about uh, uh, of loving only believers, but Christ is really saying loving everybody. He's not. That's not what Leviticus is saying. And you actually have Christ then interpreting Leviticus against what it said, because it's saying, we'll love everybody and, and not the believing community. Or at least, at the very, very least, you have Christ adding to it something that isn't an application of it. Uh, and this is important. He's, he's not expand. If he were to expand Leviticus and those laws to love your neighbors yourself, it would mean that you expand them to everyone in the covenant community, including those who are your enemies. That's how he's actually expanding it, including the enemies, including the people who oppose you, including the people who slander you in the covenant community, who are shunning you in the covenant community. You still love those people. That's how you expand it to the utmost. You wouldn't expand it to talk about something that it never referred to and has nothing to do with, which is to love unbelievers as well, that it's just an odd thing to think that that's an expansion. It's not an expansion, it's an addition. So you then have to ask, is Christ adding to the law? Because he just got done saying, both in the beginning of the sermon and toward the end, that he's not adding anything, he's not doing away with it, he's actually giving you the law and the prophets. So what you already received, he's not adding to it, he's actually telling you what you already got. And so... That's the problem for this whole hermeneutic, that Jesus is adding something new now, uh, rather than just expanding an application of what the Old Testament taught. 
What does the Old Testament actually teach? That's their tradition, but let's, let's look at the Old Testament. The Jews entertain it. You know the story, of course. And they were commanded to exterminate the Canaanites. They were told, Deuteronomy 23, that the uh, Ammonites, the Moabites, the Midianites were not to be treated with kindness as a people. You got that. They were not to be treated with kindness as a people. Okay, so here, here we're going to get um, what I would refer to as the Arminian argument applied to this issue. Uh, God's just talking about groups, not individuals. So, yeah, they're commanded to not be kind at all, you know, to the group. But, but to the individuals, no, they, they should be, you know, they should love the individuals. It's like, wait, wait a minute, what? Um, it, it, so what the law is saying is as a group, as this kind of nebulous blob of a group, go kill these men, their wives, their children, burn their houses down, hamstring their oxen, uh, like all of that sort of thing. But as a group, not individually. Again, see, that when, when we try to get, when we, we, you will know if you come to the text with a preconceived notion. If you are eisegeting, you're going to know it because what's going to happen is you're going to have to generalize and, and explain then things that are flat out contradictions. And so if, if you have to like generalize in order to explain those things, you've got a problem with your system. You're, you're reading something into the text. If you have to make it like, well, God's just saying, yeah, you can hate groups of people. You can hate nations, but not individuals. It's like, well, nations and groups are made up of individuals. How exactly do you hate a group without hating the individuals? Again, it's like the Arminian argument that's like, well, God elects groups, not individuals. It's like, well, the individuals make up the group. So what, what's done to a group is done to the individual parts of that group. That's just the nature of it. So if you hate the group and you're to not be kind to the group, and you're to destroy the group, then that means you, you are to not be kind and hate and destroy the individuals of that group. If you're talking about, again, here in the, with the Canaanites and also with the Amalekites as well, and then other, you know, other groups that attack them. Uh, by the way, also including those who fall under the condemnation of the law uh, and the death penalties, uh, same thing. You are, you're, you're not loving those people by killing them, uh, and, you know, they're not loving Aiken by stoning them and, you know, burning them. And it's, you know, it's Aiken and his whole family. That's, that's not love. But they are loving the covenant community by purifying it. And they are loving God by being obedient to have a pure community in that way. In fact, they were to be executed. And you would say, reading the imprecatory Psalms, it seems as though God's hatred toward people is severe, why is it wrong for us? For example, in Psalm 69, mm -hmm. verse 22, this, this the psalmist prays, may their table, speaking of his enemies, their table before them become a snare. And when they're in peace, may it become a trap. May their eyes grow dim so they cannot see and their loins shake continually. Pour out your indignation on them and may your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be desolate. May none dwell in their tents, for they have persecuted him whom you yourself have smitten. And they tell of the pain of those whom you have wounded, iniquity, adding iniquity to iniquity. And may they not come into your righteousness. May they be blotted out of the book of life, and may they not be recorded with the righteous. Wow. Amen. Pretty severe. Doesn't that sound like a curse to you? Is that not a curse? 
Um, is the psalmist basically he's actually doing something unrighteous there? Should we actually rip that out of the scripture because it's sin? Because now that Jesus has come, we know that that's actually sin. But may, maybe we'll be okay with him sinning. But that's actually teaching sin. It's not a matter of like that's not a narrative saying, "Hey, David said this." It's not a description. It's actually it's actually teaching. Like you're to emulate the worship that's in the Psalms, and part of the worship is actually curse of the wicked and hatred of the wicked. Well, if you're not to do that, if that's actually against what Jesus is commanding, you've got some satanic verses there like the Muslims do. You should rip them out. Again, this is, this is so unnecessary. This tension between texts, this fodder for liberals to argue that the Bible is wrong and Jesus proves it because Jesus tells us that the Bible is wrong. And it shows us that you know the Old Testament, it was, just, uh, it was just a development of religion. And this is just a book of men writing their own opinions. And that's why it's so contradictory. Like you are feeding into liberalism with this. There is absolutely no reason that there is a contradiction here. If you just interpret Matthew in its context, that's all you need to do. Just interpret it in context so you don't have to do this. Well, what is that? That is a psalmist affirming the divine design of God to war against the nations that threatened Israel. The wars of Israel were the only holy wars in history. The only holy wars in history authorized by God as acts of judgment. God doesn't withhold judgment. He drowned the entire world, didn't he? By the way, I do want to say that that's not actually true. Now, I, I, obviously, MacArthur's saying it's the only physical holy war authorized by God, and we would agree, but we are actually in a holy war as well. We are spiritual Israel, and we continue the purging of the world through the gospel, through the whole counsel of God, through discipleship, and as Matthew will talk about later, even through excommunication, as we also continue to do this. We are, we are taking down strongholds. We are in a war, and that means we should have the same attitude toward our unbelieving enemies that they had if our unbelieving enemies are getting in the way of God, if they are hateful toward God, if they're going to remain that way, if they're not going to repent, they're just going to be uh, the, the stumbling blocks of the world, then we should actually say, hey, you know, yeah, God, can you remove these people? Can you destroy these destroyers if, in fact, they're not going to repent? Obviously, we should pray for them to repent and hope that they do. But it becomes clear after a while, once some people have heard the gospel, once they've been prayed for, they become even more hardened and more hardened. You realize they're Pharaoh in the world and not the Apostle Paul. And at that point, you might actually give uh, one of these prayers because we are in a holy war. Again, this is important to understand the continuity. The day of Noah. The Old Testament is filled with many, many judgments. The wars of Israel were not acts of personal vengeance by the Jewish people. They were commands by God for judgment to fall on those nations surrounding Israel, which proved to be a deadly threat. Oh, just to, just to note that actually they, they are not acts of judgment against the Canaanites, that's true, but God does order acts of vengeance against the Amalekites. And so the Amalekites did not let, not let them go up through their land, and therefore they're to be destroyed. There are acts of vengeance that God is saying, hey, I want you to take vengeance on these people. Now, obviously, God is commanding it, so we know. But the point is, is that if God could command you on one hand to take you know, vengeance on a people, and then on the other hand say, oh, yeah, taking vengeance is always wrong, 
then that's a problem. So you're going to have to come up with some position to where, well, sometimes it's okay to take vengeance and sometimes it's not. Sometimes you can love your enemies and sometimes you can hate them. And it's like, okay, well, now, now we're really confused. I mean, which, what are we supposed to do? Again, if, if, if we just work these things in their context, we don't have those problems. God is the only one who can command that because vengeance belongs to the Lord. I will repay. Only by divine command can an imprecatory psalm be prayed on the head of an enemy of Israel. Does the psalmist have a divine command? Is the psalmist, is that what the psalmist is, is calling out for? It, I'm, I'm not sure. Now, maybe, maybe I need to actually go back and look at the particular psalm that he's quoting because there's multiple psalms like this. But, um, but it, is it just like toward Canaanites? Um, is it, or is it actually talking about people who are trying to, you know, undo Israel from within? I mean, again, it's, it's, we don't have the divine command that the psalmist is necessarily going off of. And so I don't know that you could necessarily say this, but again, it seems odd to be commanded one thing and then later by Jesus commanded another. By the way, there's no such imprecation in prayer in the New Testament. This was tied to God's protection and preservation of his people in the Old Testament so that they would be sustained to the arrival of Messiah. If you had someone surrounding your house and is going to destroy your family, um, I, I hope that you would pray, yeah, God, uh, show them the right way and repent. But also, if that's not going to happen, that God would destroy them so that your family is not destroyed. That's preservation, too. Uh, I don't, again, that's creational. I don't think it's just for Israel in that regard. In the imprecatory Psalms, the Psalmists don't speak with personal hatred, personal animosity. They speak as a representative of God. They speak as a representative of God's people, and he regards the idolatrous wicked as the enemies of God, Psalm 69.9, as you heard. So that, that is the only set of divinely authorized holy wars in history. The issues were judicial on the part of God. He was bringing judgment, just and righteous judgment, at the time he deemed it needed to be done. It was never personal. You know, you, you could make that argument for people who slander you that they're in sin and that what you do against them to move against them is righteous judgment and all that sort of thing. But uh, again, if we understand the context, we're not to do that with fellow believers, um, you know. But the Pharisees and the scribes and the rabbis had personalized all of that and used scriptures like that to justify their personal hatred. They took essentially prerogatives that belonged only to God and operated them in their personal relationships. Even in the New Testament, Jesus shows a different attitude than God took in dealing with the nations to protect Israel. Jesus has a different attitude than God took with the nations in dealing with Israel. So Jesus has changed his mind. The, the, again, this is really problematic. This is where dispensationalism that MacArthur holds to, and of course I don't, um, it gets to the point of almost Marcionism, neo-Marcionism, to where, well, Jesus has a different opinion than God in the Old Testament. Now, obviously, MacArthur does not believe that. He does not believe. If, you were, if I were to say that to him, he'd be, no, absolutely, I reject that. Um, the problem is, is that what he just said assumes it. 
Jesus can't have a different attitude toward the nations. God doesn't change. He doesn't change his mind. He doesn't change his attitude toward groups of people. Those who he loves, he has loved for all eternity in the Son. And those who he hates, he has hated for all eternity outside of the Son. And there is no change to it. And if you think there's a change, there's a problem with your doctrine of God. Again, MacArthur theoretically would reject that, but he just made an argument saying that, no, Jesus actually changes the attitude toward the nations that God once had. That's not true, by the way. As we go through the Old Testament, I mean, we start getting into Joshua and the rest of the Deuteronomistic history. It's really clear that Gentiles are accepted in, even in the law that I just mentioned with the Gare. If MacArthur had actually looked at the context of that, God's attitude toward the nations is not different. Israel's to be a light to the nations. That's the complaint in, in Jonah, like bringing out how Jonah doesn't actually care about the other nations and God does. So there's no change of attitude. Uh, that is brought out because MacArthur is trying to, to make some sense of why, he, why there's this contradiction. And there's this contradiction because of the way he's interpreting these texts but not because God's changed anything. He hasn't changed any sort of attitude whatsoever. Jesus looked at Jerusalem and what did he do? He wept. He wept. Jesus, the judge, to whom all judgment is committed, wept over the rejectors. There is a kind of perfect hatred. I will admit that because it's in... Psalm 139, and it's expressed clearly. Listen to verse... All right, so I, I want you to notice, this is where MacArthur is going to make my argument almost uh, with this passage, um, because again, he's got to reconcile this material with his interpretation, which granted, it's the most common interpretation. My interpretation is not accepted by hardly anyone, because people are assuming this one among uh, evangelicals and fundamentalists. And so ultimately, uh, and liberals alike, I mean, it's the whole, it's the whole religious culture, really. Um, but he's got to now reconcile these passages that clearly contradict what Jesus is saying if you interpret, it, G- interpret Jesus in the way that these people want to interpret him. And so the, the, the last, you know, uh, the last uh, fortress one can run to is just by saying, well, it's mystery, which is what people typically do when they contradict they're using the Bible and they're interpreting things wrong. And they say, well, it's, it's this mystery. And that's why it contradicts. Verses 19 and following. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, men of bloodshed. For they speak against you wickedly. And your enemies take your name in vain. Do not I hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. Do I not hate those who hate you? Is that not every unbeliever? Is every unbeliever not a hater of God? Look at Romans 3. Are they not murderers, destroyers, like all these things the psalmist is talking about? Those who hate God? Again, we're not talking about being embittered and wanting to, like, you know, uh, you know we have, a, we have a, a first priority to try to save people. But we understand that the enemies of God, at the end of the day, we should hate them as God does. Those who are going to remain God's enemies, we absolutely should hate these people. And notice what he says, your enemies have become my enemies. 
well, if your enemies have become my enemies and I'm supposed to love my enemies, then why is it okay to hate my enemies? And isn't this whole message entitled like treat your enemies and love your enemies like as God does? Well, right here, God hates his enemies. And we, and the psalmist is hating his enemies and his enemies are his enemies as well. Like his enemies are our enemies. Again, there's a contradiction. If you, if you understand that this is talking about unbelievers, they're not going to repent. They're not a part of God's elect. And therefore they're hated by the psalmist and they're hated by God in that God is not going to provide for them the resources, the eternal resources of the kingdom. Um, he's not going to, he's going to blot them out of the, the book of life. So they're, they're not going to continue to live on the earth. He's not going to continue to sustain them in any way whatsoever. He's going to hate them. You understand then that, that we should have that same, that same attitude toward these particular people who are in fact, not going to repent that we should hate them and they are our enemies and we don't love them period. That, that is a perfect hatred. That is a righteous hatred. That is the attitude of the martyrs in Revelation 6 in the fifth seal who are under the altar praying that the Lord will put an end to the persecution at the time of the tribulation. Now, I want you to notice how MacArthur is going to spin this. So I want you to, the, the martyrs are praying to put an end to the persecution. That's a thing that they're praying against, not people. But the psalm he just quoted is actually talking about hating people, not hating situations, not hating things, not hating things that they do necessarily, but hating them. Obviously, you hate things that they do and you hate situations. You might pray against those. But the psalmist is talking about hating the people. So I almost feel like MacArthur's about to go into what we would call the hate the sin, not the sinner uh, type of argument. But that's not actually what these texts are saying. It is right to hate what God hates and love what God loves. To hate what God hates and what uh, God loves, or to love what God loves. Notice, it sh he should have said to hate who God hates and to love who God loves, because that's what the psalm is talking about, and that would be the correct interpretation and application. Uh, instead, we're talking about things because we're off of the actual people. In the broad sense, it is right to feel the pain when God is dishonored. The reproaches that fall on you fall on me. I remember the story of Henry Martin, missionary to India. And uh, when he arrived there, he went into a Hindu temple where there were all kinds of atrocities, forms of idolatry. And he watched what was going on, and in his own writings, he, he wrote this as, as he left. I cannot endure existence if Jesus is to be so dishonored. I feel that pain, and so do you, don't you? Now, yes, we should, but I want you to notice again that this is a switch from the people to what the people are doing. So, like, MacArthur has done, again, a bait and switch. Like, the psalmist was talking about hating the people, the evil people, the people who are haters of God, his enemies and our enemies. Um, he, he, MacArthur switched it to be talking about hating the stuff that's done that brings dishonor to Christ. But he, he, and he gave us a story along that line instead of an example where someone said, I hate those who dishonor you. Notice that would have been actually uh, the correct example to use for this passage. You, you feel that pain. The reproaches that fall on your Lord fall on you, and you feel the pain. The reproaches. 
um, that fall, that you feel the pain of it. Again, this is not this is not talking about the psalm. And you hate that. You, you hate, hate that. that God is dishonored. You hate that Christ is dishonored. You hate that, you hate that the name dishonored. of Jesus Christ is used as a swear word. You hate when Jesus is demeaned and blasphemed. It's not just talking about hating the sin. You hate that. And you have every reason to hate that. That's a holy hatred. That's a righteous indignation. That's the Spirit of God in you showing you what to love and what to hate. Not what to love and what to hate, who to love. That's what the psalm says. Again, MacArthur is not reconciling these things with his interpretation of Jesus at all. Uh, he, he is ignoring what they're saying, and he's, he's saying, oh yeah, they're perfectly reconciled because you just hate stuff, but you're to actually love people. Well, no, that's not what the psalmist is saying, and that's not what Jesus is saying. But clearly, that doesn't give you justification to hate individual sinners. Listen to Exodus 23, verses 4 and 5. So that doesn't give you justification to hate people. You can just hate stuff. But again, that's not what the psalmist does. He's talking about hating people. <laughs> again, this is the sort of, you know, again, you know, hate the sin, not the sinner. But God is talking about hating the people. And we should then, if we love what God loves and hate what he hates, then we should love who God loves and hate who he hates. Again, love and hate in terms of who do we take care of? Who are we responsible for? Are we responsible to take care of the people who hate God? No. Are we responsible to take care of the, the people who God hates? No. Are we responsible to take care of the people who love God and the people who are loved by God? Yes, 100%. That is your neighbor. That's what the Bible teaches. Five. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey wandering away, not much chance of that. No, but you get the point. You shall surely return it to him. If you find somebody's donkey or ox straying away, take it back to him. Now, I want you to notice, I usually quote this verse to prove that enemy is talking about someone within the covenant community and not some unbeliever or pagan or someone in a pagan nation somewhere. You're not having oxen stray from like Egypt all the way to Israel. You're not having oxen stray from Assyria. And there's no pagans in the land who are not being destroyed by the Israelites and pushed out. So it's not as though, and they're taking their oxen. So why would they return the oxen of the Canaanite? That makes no sense. Enemy is talking about the guy within the covenant community who is a fellow worshiper of Yahweh, who, and you have a disagreement with him. You're not friends. You're opposed to one another. Um, and, and if his oxen strays, what, what is God teaching? You're to love your enemy within the covenant community and return his oxen. Again, Jesus is not teaching anything new. He's picking it up from the law. Love your enemy within the covenant community is within the command to love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus is simply pointing that out, drawing that out of the law that was already given, not giving a new law that says, yeah, your enemy is now the unbeliever who hates God, and therefore you should take care of him too. No, I'm sorry. That's, just, that's your tradition, but that's not what the scripture is saying. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying helpless under its load, you shall refrain from leaving it. You shall surely release it. If you find somebody's donkey on the ground because the load is too great, even if it's your enemy, you relieve the donkey of its burden. 
So again, where is the donkey? It's falling under a load like in Assyria. Again, I think MacArthur is taking this universal context and reading these laws within it as though it's talking about America, um, you know, in the 19th century or something. And your donkey would vendor. No, it's talking about Israelites. If if there's an Israelite that hates you, a fellow covenant member that hates you, and you find his donkey under a load because his donkey under a load would be the only one you find. Because no one else is going to be there. There's not going to be another pagan there worshiping another god there to be actually purged from the land. They're not living next to you. They're nowhere near you. And the Assyrians are not going to, it's not going to come from the Assyrians or the Egyptians or even the Philistines. You're not going to get that like all the way over in Israel. And so again, um, this is just understanding the context in which these, these were given. They're within the covenant community, which means that you can have enemies within the covenant community. You can have people hate you and don't want to take care of you within the covenant community, and you are commanded to still take care of them. Save their donkey, return their oxen. Uh, that's what you're to do because that's loving your enemy. As God originally said in the law, originally, and Jesus is now repeating against the Pharisees who have limited it to their tiny little group within the covenant community. You express kindness, not only toward your neighbor or your enemy, but toward your enemy's animal. I think there's a couple of really graphic illustrations of this. You remember the story in First uh, Samuel 24, when David went into the cave, same cave Saul was in, and Saul was trying to find a way to kill David. And David was hiding in the very same cave that Saul was in. And Saul was in the cave, the Bible says, relieving himself, and David could have killed him. He was in a compromised position. But David went up and cut a little piece off his garment, and David refused to take his life. And it says in First Samuel 24:10, because David pitied him. He pitied him. Because David and Saul are in the covenant community, David is actually following the law. Saul is not. But that doesn't make Saul an unbeliever. It doesn't make Saul an Assyrian or an Egyptian or whatever. It makes Saul a, a fallen believer, maybe an apostate at that point. Um, but David's not even in a position to judge him in that matter. And so David is doing what the law commands to do, which is do good to your enemies within the covenant community. He had a sense of, uh, of compassion toward his most severe and deadly enemy and would not take his life. Yeah, amen. There was Shimei in 2 Samuel 16 who started cursing David. Again, here we, here we have another one, right? So he's cursing David, slandering David. Shimei is um, he's a part of the, he's a, a, a Benjamite within the, the clan of Saul. And so again, a fellow Israelite who is an enemy, uh, and um, and David does good to him. At least you know until now. I mean, he tells Solomon later to kill him, but <laughs> but at least for during his lifetime, he he doesn't take out vengeance on him, even though he could as the king, obviously. But again, David's just trying to follow the law to the hilt. People said, "Tell him to stop. Tell him to stop." And David said, "No, no, let him curse." There's a purpose in this. That's goodness to evil enemies. In Job 31, 29, and 30, Job, defending his godly virtue, said these words, Have I rejoiced at the extinction of my enemy, or rejoiced when evil befell him? No, I have not allowed my mouth to sin by asking for his life in a curse. Again, so Job is written uh, much later. Um, I think that even though Job is placed in a non-Israelite context, 
uh, the, the idea is that Job and his friends are still worshipers of God and his community is still a worshiper of God. That, that's a larger argument to make. I can't make it here. But again, it's, yeah, he's not, he's not asking for the life of the fellow members in his, his uh, covenant community. Again, I mean, you're just, you, you don't have this to where, you know, the Assyrians come to attack Israel and it's like, well, we shouldn't actually do anything because, you know, we need to love our enemies. Like, you just don't have that. But you do have within the covenant community, and that's what Jesus is bringing out. There are some enemies pretty seriously doing damage to Job, right? I didn't ask for his life in a curse. Proverbs twenty-five twenty-one: if your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink, and the Lord will reward you. So again, this is really important when you read Proverbs, and not just for this issue, but you understand that this is within the covenant community. When it's talking about obeying the instructions of your mother and father, even in Proverbs, as we kind of dealt with last week, uh, in reality, it's it's really talking about godly parents. Obviously, God doesn't want you following the horrible pagan advice of unbelievers who are telling you to do what's wicked and their whole culture is based on wickedness. I mean, do you have to follow your father and mother's commands in Sodom and Gomorrah to, like, engage in sexual morality? I mean, no. I mean, you know. So, uh, again, I, I think it's it's important to understand that when you read Proverbs, the assumption is that we're talking about people within the covenant community and even people following God in that regard. Um, and then, so how, what do you do with your enemies within the covenant community? Again, would there be other people living there who aren't uh, Israelites worshiping other gods? Well, you know, only if Israel allows them in, but not not under God's um, direction. So they'd be sinning by doing that. So the enemy can't be someone who's a pagan who's not supposed to be there in the first place. So there's plenty of information in the Old Testament to separate personal attitude toward enemies from judicial actions on the part of God against nations who are a threat to his redemptive purpose. Again, that's, so it's the nations that you can hate, but not the individuals. So that's a little bit about tradition and uh, Old Testament teaching. But let's look at the most important point, the truth from Jesus in the text before us. Our Lord is going to correct their misrepresentation of God's will with three sequential principles that correct this faulty understanding. They are sequential and they are ascending. Love your enemies, pray for your persecutors, manifest your sonship. So let's look at verse 44, love your enemies. But I say to you, love your enemies. No one has a problem loving friends. That's what defines a friend, somebody you love. Now, I want you to notice here, MacArthur correctly interprets how the Pharisees were taking the word neighbor, the word neighbor meaning friend. And it was easy to love their friends then. Um, and, and therefore, the enemy is someone who's not their friend and not within their social group, the group that they like, but people who are opposed to them. We see this earlier on in Matthew to where you know, if your brother realizes he has something against you, there's slander or something that he's done, you're not friends. I mean, the person who slanders you is not a friend of yours, but you're to reconcile, you're to, you're to lay aside your, your offering, you're to go reconcile with them, you're, you reconcile with your brother. And I think there it's talking about your fellow Jewish person within the covenant community, because obviously he's bringing something to the altar. Um, and that's important for how we look at brother here, because a lot of people assume that brother means like Christian, 
And uh, that's not true, especially not only in the Pentateuch, but especially in Leviticus, where the, the love your neighbor command is. Brother is specifically used to talk about your fellow race, your fellow Jew, the, the person of your fellow, you know, your, your, uh, your same uh, ethnic, ethnic group. Um, and, and Jesus is going to point that out. But anyway, that's, uh, that's uh, later. Jesus goes to the real issue. This is what the divine law is speaking about. When it says, love your neighbor as yourself is the second great commandment. It must embrace your enemy. It's anybody in your life, anybody in your world, anyone. Anybody in your life, anybody in your world, it must embrace your enemy. So anybody in your life, anybody in your world is, is uh, your neighbor. And yet there's an enemy that's distinct from the neighbor. I mean, it, again, it's just, it, it's very convoluted again. Um, this is the law, love your neighbor as yourself, that MacArthur is admitting then that this is the law, not Jesus adding to the law. If he's adding to the law, then why is he rebuking them for not obeying something they never had? He's rebuking them because this is the original law. And when we go back to look at the original law, it's not talking about everyone, including unbelievers, everyone in a global context, it's talking about everyone within Israel, everyone who's considered a, a follower and worshiper of Yahweh within the covenant community. And by the way, I use covenant community. I know people get upset by it. I don't know why. I'm just trying to describe the church and the church, quote unquote, in the Old Testament. I don't usually use church for the Old Testament because you, you get into a further debate that way, and I, I, I'm trying to avoid that. I'm just talking about people who are in covenant with God, the visible community of the people of God, whether in the Old Testament during the time of Jesus and then in the New Testament. Um, like that, that's, that's all I'm talking about. Uh, so that's what I mean by covenant community. You're, you're in, your believers are at least claiming to be believers or be, being a part of this church, quote unquote, community. One who comes into your space, the um, beautiful and familiar story in Luke 10, and verse 25, a lawyer stood up and put Jesus to the test and said, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said, What's written in the law? How does it read to you? And he said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Which, of course, is impossible, and that's the point he was making. Wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, Who's my neighbor? Give me a definition of neighbor. Jesus replied and told the story of the Good Samaritan, didn't he? A man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho fell among robbers. They stripped him, beat him, went away, leaving him dead. A priest came by, passed on the other side. A Levite came by, passed on the other side. A Samaritan, a half-breed outcast, hated by the Jews, saw him and felt compassion, bound up his wounds, poured oil and wine, put him on his own beast, brought him to an inn, took care of him, gave money to the innkeeper, take care of him. Whatever more you spend, I'll give you back when I return. Which of the three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into robbers' hands? He said, the one who showed mercy toward him. Who is your neighbor? Anybody who needs your mercy. <laughs> so uh, so uh, this, this shows how powerful tradition is. Um, MacArthur just got done reading Christ asking the question, which one of the three was a neighbor to the man? The man is the one in need. Which one of the three was a neighbor to him? And meaning only one of the three, the other two weren't. And the man is already assumed to be part of the covenant community. So the, the lesson of the good Samaritan parable is not to teach 
that anyone in need is your neighbor. It's already assumed the guy in need is actually a part of the covenant community. Luke, in the context of the gospel of Luke, is arguing that you show yourself, your actual fruit that Matthew will will have a little bit of as well, is to take care of the poor and marginalized within the Christian community, uh, within the covenant community. And he's using this as an example of that. So what he's trying to say to the man is that you're, you, the man thinks, obviously, just like the Pharisees do, uh, as we talked about in Matthew, that the, the, his neighbor are his friends and the people in his in-group. And since he loves them already, he's trying to justify himself in, other to say, in order to say, like, oh, I already, I already love my neighbor. And Jesus wants to say, well, yeah, but you're like judging different groups within the covenant community like they're not your neighbors, they're not your fellow covenant community members. And what you really need to ask is whether you're a neighbor. And so let me tell you a parable about who, what it actually looks like to be a neighbor to someone within the covenant community. So the answer is not anyone in need is the neighbor. The answer is the guy who takes care of a fellow covenant member in need is the neighbor. That's the point. Um, so many people misunderstand this. And so many people, again, they generalize it. They bring this globalist, inclusivist mindset to the parable rather than understanding that Luke is talking to the church about the church. So when they see, you know, blessed are the poor, uh, for theirs is the kingdom of God, it's sort of like, well, so there you go, the, the poor in general. And liberals will read that and say, look, the poor in general, especially liberation theologians, the poor in general uh, will inherit the kingdom of God whether they believe in Christ or not. Well, is that is that the point? No, no. It's the poor within the covenant community. Luke doesn't say it because it's assumed within the context of his whole gospel, which is why the, uh, the story of the rich man and Lazarus, it's very clear. Both of those are members of the covenant community. The rich man does not take care of the poor man. Lazarus is, of course, the Latinized version of Eliezer. Um, So he's Jewish, and of course, he's with his father Abraham in the bosom of Abraham, and the rich man calls him Father Abraham, and Abraham says that his brothers have the scriptures. So we're talking about within the covenant community. It's not to be generalized and globalized, but unfortunately, because of the Enlightenment, we read these texts in a context with the assumption of uh, inclusivism, that it's just talking about everyone in the world, and this is to be applied to everyone, when in fact, Luke is writing to Christians about Christians. He's writing to Theophilus and actually saying, hey, uh, these Christians are being persecuted and outcast, and you know, you're in government, maybe you can do something about it. That's essentially the idea of Luke and Acts. It doesn't matter if that neighbor is one who hates you, as the Jews hated the Samaritans. The, the rabbi and the priest didn't want to touch the man, because their theology said he's in the problem he's in because he's sinful, they went around the other side of the road. They might have actually had cleanliness laws they were thinking of, but that's part of the idea that cleanliness laws should take a back road to actual morality and love. The despised and hated and rejected Samaritan had compassion on the man who was socially an enemy. By the way, just to to note, uh, because Luke is making the argument who's an actual real covenant member, who's actually saved, in other words, who actually is a person of God, Samaritans were worshipers of Yahweh. They're not pagans. And so as MacArthur notes here, they're socially rejected, not religiously rejected. 
the the boundary lines are being drawn because of social issues because they are in fact as he said earlier they're half breeds right they're they're mixed they're a mixed race uh they're half jewish and they're half something else whether they be assyrians or whatever uh the various peoples that were deported into the north um and so they were they were considered unclean socially because of ritual issues but not because of their religion i mean i have a samaritan pentateuch on my shelf back here. So uh, again, they are worshipers of Yahweh. When, when Jesus meets the Samaritan woman at the well, they're waiting for the Messiah. They're, they're worshipers of Yahweh. He just has to inform her that you know, they're kind of worshiping in ignorance because they don't actually have the, the, the right spot and they don't have like all of the, uh, the texts that they need. But ultimately, they're worshipers of Yahweh. So the Samaritan is a worshiper, but he proved to be a true worshiper of Yahweh by taking care of another person who worships Yahweh. In other words, like Jesus says in Matthew 25, taking care of me uh, through the least of these brothers of mine. Love your enemies. Ekthron su. Pan ekthron su means your personal enemy. Not talking about some collective. It's your personal enemy. Agapate. There's nothing in... there. <laughs> There's, there's, if you want to say uh, Tan Ekthron Sue is your personal enemy because it has the possessive your, um, well, okay, I, I guess that's true a, a little bit. I mean, you know, I don't, I, I think again, MacArthur's trying to make this distinction between you can hate other enemies and, and groups or whatever, but you can't hate your personal enemy. I don't, I don't know. It's, it doesn't quite make a, a whole lot of sense. Um, it, it really is just talking about someone who is wicked toward you. Period, and obviously the the psalms that we read earlier, he read earlier, um, are talking about hating the enemies that hate God as well. Uh, that then become your enemies. So your enemies become my enemies. That's also possessive. My personal enemies are those who are your enemies. So I I wouldn't make a whole lot out of that whole thing. From agapao, the highest noblest form of love, and in the present tense, be constantly loving your enemies. This is the love of the will. This is not the love of emotion. This is the love of the will. It is not related to any personal gain or personal fulfillment. It is the love of unconquerable benevolence. It is the love of invincible goodwill. It's the loving heart. I, I would agree with that, but applied to fellow That wants to free the enemy from any thought of hate. Wants to rescue the enemy from sin. Wants to see his soul saved. It's the highest love. One writer says, I cannot, like a false, lying, slanderous fellow who perhaps has vilified me again and again, I cannot like him, but I can, by the grace of Jesus Christ, love him, see what is wrong with him, desire to work to do him only good, and most of all, to free him from his vicious ways. Now, I, I do think we should uh, obviously pray for the unbeliever in that regard. I mean, we, we were all unbelievers at one time. We're, we're seeking God's elect. We want to try to find them and love them in the way they need to be loved uh, by the preaching of the gospel and through the, uh, the discipleship by teaching them all, you know, them everything that Christ commanded and all of that. Um, I, I do think, though, however, it, it's important to understand that you know, if you read Romans 12, for instance, Romans 12 is almost parallel with what Matthew is saying. Read Romans 12. You're, you're heaping burning coals on your enemy's head. And who is, who is it talking about? Well, it's talking about loving one another within the fellow covenant community. It's not talking about pagans or anything. 
Read Romans 12 and see that. That's that, that, that. Ultimately, take out the parenthetical about the government things that might confuse you. Take that parenthetical out that Paul's talking about and, and go down Romans and, and read the whole thing and how love of neighbor is applied to the covenant community, and you're seeking his repentance, the repentance of other believers who mistreat you. Again, you've got the Jewish-Gentile thing going on there as well, and Paul's trying to, to say, hey, now that you're all Israel through faith, uh, love one another. And if someone mistreats you within the covenant community, you know what? Try to love them, and, um, and uh, by that, they'll pour burning coals on their head, meaning they'll, they'll repent. Um, they'll, they'll repent, uh, completely, uh, if you're kind to them, perhaps. In Luke 6, Jesus said, do good to those who hate you. So loving your neighbor means seeking the highest good. That's the noblest kind of love. And loving your enemies means the same thing. Seek the highest good. Now, how does that? Seek the highest good, but realize that we're talking about not necessarily seeking the highest good of their good, because obviously God does not seek their highest good in sending them to hell. He seeks the highest good because it's glorification of him. And so Romans 9, God endures with much patience vessels of wrath for what purpose? To display his mercy upon uh, uh, his glory to vessels of mercy. And so... um very important to understand that that's the goal. So all things work together for good for those who love God and those who are called according to his purposes. We're not, we're not supposed to be doing something contrary to God that we're just like seeking everyone's best good. Now, I, I grant MacArthur didn't say that, but I wanted to clarify that um, because seeking someone's seeking the ultimate good may also mean that you then don't take care of the enemies of God because you're taking care of his people. Uh, again, that's because it's the glory of God and the love of God that you're seeking. You're seeking to actually clothe Christ, uh, who we see through Christians, not pagans. It's the least of these brothers of mine. So it's Christians who represent Christ, not the poor in general, as we would have it in liberation theology and liberalism and the social gospel and all of that, that frankly, e evangelicalism has adopted. Um, we, we are seeking to clothe him and love him, and that's the highest good, doing good to one another, loving one another. And so you see that in 1 John. What, what is the, the evidence, the assurance that you can get in your love? Well, when you love the brethren, when you have the world's goods and you see your brother in need and you care for him, if you don't do that, how can you say the love of God's in you? Well, it's kind of weird, and same thing with James, right? So you, you care for one another, and that's loving your neighbor. That's fulfilling the royal law. It's interesting that when you see these judgment scenes, when you're condemned for not taking care of poor Christians, why it is that it's explicit about not taking care of your brother or one another or the least of these brothers of mine, and it's clearly about Christians that you're supposed to love, if in fact Jesus actually commanded you to love everyone. Like, if why, why isn't the judgment just you didn't love everyone? Why is it you didn't love Christians? Because that's the actual command, and therefore that's the actual judgment. If it was something else, then the judgment would be something else, but it isn't. That play out. Second point, pray for your persecutors. It shows up then in prayer. Verse 44, pray for those who persecute you. Those would be your severest enemies. You have a lot of enemies who don't personally persecute you, so let's just take the most extreme situation. People who persecute you, those are the ones you pray for. Go back in chapter 5 to verse 10. 
in the Beatitudes, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So this assumes you're going to have persecutors. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Now notice, he interprets that correctly. The persecution is talking about insults, slander, think people talking bad about you. Um, it's, it's that sort of thing. People pressuring you to like, you know, maybe teach something else. People pressuring you to kind of like, uh, no longer, you know, teach against rituals as the Jews were doing and actually to withdraw from the Gentiles and all that sort of thing. That's the persecution that we're talking about. And that's a persecution that's coming from within the covenant community, as we see again in like Galatians and elsewhere. If they're doing that to you, you're blessed. Isn't that wonderful? Doesn't that turn it on its head? By the way, I say Galatians, but also um, the fact that uh, Matthew 24, again, is talking about if Christ returns and he sees you, who he's given charge over the children to give their food in their due time, uh, beat your fellow slaves instead. Notice it's beating, it's mistreating other Christians. That's the issue. And that's again, that's another judgment scene. Christ comes, and what does he judge you for? Mistreating other Christians. That's the issue in Matthew. I think about that a lot. Not only are you blessed, but verse 12, rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. What they're doing is adding to your eternal reward. Come on, bring it on. <laughs> for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you, you're in good company. For the same way they persecuted the prophets. Who's they? The pagans? The unbelievers? No. They persecuted the prophets. He's linking. Now, at Luke, it makes it clear that, it, it, like, Luke says, they're fathers. And so he's talking about the Jews, the people within the covenant community. Their previous covenant communities persecuted and killed the prophets. Um, now you've got a link in Matthew that they, for they, they persecuted the prophets. That, that is the covenant community is where persecution often comes from. You know, I get a lot of pushback for saying, well, you know, how could you say that Jesus is calling, you know, fellow believers that some of them might be their you know, enemies of one another and hate one another and all that sort of thing. And I, I got to tell you, the majority of hate and enemies that I've ever gotten in my life have not been pagans. I've had pagans say bad things about me because, you know, when I preach the gospel, they just think I'm a moron or whatever or a fanatic. Um, but but I've gotten way more slander. I've gotten people try to undermine my ministry, impoverish me, like all sorts of things, do all sorts of evil toward me and my family because of this. And, and within the covenant community, people who claim to be Christians. So I just think it's maybe everyone just needs to become a pastor. <laughs> and then you can see that enemy and hate and evil is very much something that I think describes even people within the visible covenant community. Now, will these people be judged by Christ uh, eventually if they don't repent? Yes. Um, but we are to seek the repentance of these people in whatever way that we can and love them in the way that Christ told us to love them. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so, but, but the, again, the enemy then, the people persecuting are from within the church. Not, it's not talking about Romans coming along with crucifixes and burning you at the stake and throwing you to the dogs. Like, this is talking about people within the covenant community. I wonder if these persecutors of faithful people understand that their efforts are being reversed by God, and out of their persecution comes blessing, and out of their persecution comes joy and gladness, and out of their persecution comes 
eternal reward. Yeah, amen. I mean, this is the upside-down reality. You preach the Word of God faithfully, you proclaim the gospel faithfully, and you get hostility and animosity, and maybe you cower and you try to make some adjustments so you can stop offending people. And if you're a preacher, you take the offenses out of the message, and consequently, you miss the blessing, the gladness, the joy, and the eternal reward that comes with faithfulness that faces persecution. Yeah, that's a real pressure for preachers, a real pressure for pastors. But, it, but it's not just a passive hope for eternal reward that is the correct response. There's a third point here. You not only pray for those who persecute you, you go further than that. In 1 Timothy, it's not a vague kind of prayer. Listen to this. 1 Timothy 2. I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions, and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority. Now we've elevated to the people who have the most power to persecute, and we're praying for them so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So, what are Okay, so... <laughs> Um, yes, you should pray for unbelievers. We said this when we went over Matthew as well. These two chapters, though, should not be linked as though they're talking about the same thing. First Timothy 2 is not the context of Matthew 5. This is the problem of people who think, well, I'm going to use the Bible to interpret the Bible, and, and that would be fine if everything was taken in context. But when you rip things out of context and you make one context the context of another verse and ignore its actual con the, the original context of that verse, um, you're going to come up with something completely different. This is how cults are made. This is how, you know, all sorts of false views are supported. And we need to stop doing that. Obviously, First Timothy 2 is saying, yes, pray for everyone because God wants, is it all men? Or in the context, is it all kinds of men, all statuses of men? Well, I think it's obviously all kinds of men does God, if God wanted all men to be saved, all men would be saved. So I almost find it curious that MacArthur is using this again in kind of like an Arminian um, type way. You know that Poss, and this is universally known, that I think among scholars at least, um, that, that Poss, when it follows or precedes some sort of delineation of a group or different groups or something, or there's assumed groups and whatnot, it's talking about kinds of men. Uh, men in different statuses, men in different roles, men in different stations or castes or whatever it may be. Um, and so it's all sorts of men. So God not only wants the lowly, some people out of the poor to be saved, he wants people even in government, some people in government to be saved. Does he want all people to be saved? No. And, um, so it's it, again, but would we pray for people to be saved? Of course we would. Of course we'd pray for everyone, everyone to repent and everyone to be saved. And I'm not saying, hey, jump the ball and immediately, you know, give an imprecatory prayer toward everyone who, you know, looks like an enemy of God from, you know, the pagan world. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, let's take Matthew in its context for what it's saying. Let's not act like we have a contradiction between Matthew and the Old Testament when Jesus is actually telling you the Old Testament and nothing more. And, um, and then let's go ahead and treat the unbeliever as the Bible tells us to, which is 
We should pray for them. We should preach the gospel to them. But we are never told to love them with actual financial kingdom resources because those belong to Christ, the least of these brothers of his, our brothers, um, as we love one another in that way. That, that's all that's being said. What are we praying for? Their salvation. We pray for- By the way, I do want to note that MacArthur doesn't actually make the argument that you should, you know, give financial resources to uh, other people. I mean, he, he does kind of earlier with the whole Samaritan thing, but as he ends here with this conclusion, it's clear that he's talking about, well, what you give the unbeliever is the gospel. Well, amen. We all agree. Uh, that's what you give the unbeliever. That That's what he needs the most. Uh, so you don't like, you know, he's being dragged into the water by a crocodile. You don't run up and give him a bottle of water and say, hey, I, I, it looks like you're thirsty. No, you, you try to actually like grab him from the crocodile. Like that's what he needs. And so this whole thing to where, well, yeah, you know, we're just going to, you know, give him a water and, and that'll somehow save him from the crocodile is nonsense. Of course it won't. Pray for God to show them their sinfulness. It would be a sin not to pray. We have wicked president, vice president, people in power and leadership, locally, statewide. Are we supposed to sit and smolder in anger? No, we're supposed to pray for what? Their salvation. Get them at the top of your prayer list. Yeah, do not smolder in anger no matter what. Toward anyone, really. Jesus said on the cross, Father, what? Forgive them. They know not what they do. That prayer was answered in a thief and a soldier and people in the crowd. Stephen prayed, lay not this sin to their charge, and that was answered in an apostle named Paul. Okay, I, I, do, I do have to note, um, uh, although there's a way to work it within all of our systems or whatever, the, the verse that says Jesus uh, said, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do, is not original. It's very clearly added uh, to the text. Jesus actually does not say this, uh, as far as we know. So this is an addition. Um, it's not in the best manuscripts uh, as you do some textual criticism. And so uh, I would not include that. Stephen actually does not say, forgive them, uh, Father. He's not actually asking for forgiveness. Now, this is important for when we're going to talk about forgiveness in Matthew, because I think people confuse it. So I just wanted to note it doesn't really necessarily relate uh, to what MacArthur's talking about here. Although I do want to note that we don't forgive unbelievers because it's on the basis of the cross taking care of sins that we forgive. We would instead tolerate unbelievers. We wouldn't break fellowship with unbelievers in the first place because they don't have a claim toward Christ. We simply tolerate and try to uh, endure uh, any sort of uh, wrath or wrongdoing they do toward us because we're seeking to save them with the gospel. Um, But Stephen is trying to basically say, uh, don't lay this at their charge. Don't put this to their charge, meaning that that you would not, not for, for God not to give them over to their sins so there's no chance of repentance. And he is right to say that God does. We know he answers the prayer, at least in, the, in terms of Saul, because he, uh, God could have given him over because of the evil he did to Stephen, but instead uh, he has mercy on him. So the prayer, in fact, is answered in that, in that regard. All right, I think we're going to go ahead and stop it there. I, I, I think we covered what we need to cover um, in terms of the exegesis here, or really the lack of exegesis. Again, I'm not trying to... Uh, cast a shadow on MacArthur, uh, but many people have noted, I would note, it's it's not just with this issue. This this happens with numerous issues with him. Um, 
there's not a lot of exegesis going on. I know that's surprising because most laymen think that MacArthur is kind of the exegete of our time or something. Um, and again, sometimes he's right because there no further exegesis is really needed because things are just plain and he, he hits the context and everything's great. Um, but other things like this where there's a, a really strong tradition, I would say our strongest tradition, um, coming from the Enlightenment inclusivism, that really shadows everything, all of our interpretation of scripture, how we view the world, how we view what we're supposed to be as Christians and all of that sort of thing. Um, you really need to dive into the exegesis and you really need to question yourself and be critical of yourself and what you're doing. And if you don't do this, then uh, you're going to be left to the tradition and you're going to be left to doing things like this. You're going to be taking things out of context. You're not going to know the reference for words um, you're going to be assuming a lot of your tradition in your interpretation. Uh, you're going to be assuming, in this case, a very globalist, inclusivist context rather than the context of the covenant community, which the Bible assumes. Um, and so, again, I, I just think that it's an important lesson for us that no matter who the teacher is, whether he's your favorite Bible teacher you know, on TV or not, that it's important to be discerning because ultimately our allegiance is to Jesus Christ and to his word. And, um, and uh, compared to Christ, we are to even hate our own father and mother. Again, not boiling in hatred, that's not what, boiling in anger and whatnot, that's not what hatred's talking about, but that uh, the idea that we are to choose Christ over our parents, choose Christ over our favorite teachers, um, we are to uh, uh, love them uh, less than we love Christ, and therefore even to the point of hating them if it comes down to having to choose between them and Christ. That's really what this is all talking about at the end of the day. So I hope that's understood. I hope this has been helpful. Uh, I hope this isn't taken as any sort of judgment on MacArthur. Again, I think he has been bold in proclaiming truths that I would agree with, and I appreciate him for that. And he's had a long ministry, a lot longer ministry than I've had. Uh, he's like, I'm sure he's a godlier man than I am. I'm not trying to claim anything over him. Um, if you r remember, I didn't even want to mention his name in a previous video when I was critiquing something that he, his church was doing and he was doing. But at the end of the day, we need to actually look at these things seriously, no matter who's saying them, and be critical of our teachers, not just their teachers, as I mentioned before. So let's go ahead and end in a word of prayer. Father, again, we thank you so much for your word. I pray that we have such a love and respect for you that um, we catch ourselves when we might be taking you out of context, because certainly, Lord, you have spoken your word, but your word is not merely a paragraph. Your word is not merely a couple words or a sentence. Your word has the larger context of an entire book, and that has a context within itself of, of being informed by the other books as well. But let us have a proper methodology where we exegete these scriptures in their context first, and then we apply them to one another, we compare them to one another, and, and have a robust theology and worldview in that way. That's how we do biblical theology, Lord. Uh, and, uh, and when we fail to look at individual texts within what the book is talking about, we fail to understand what's being said. And we, we end up distorting our worldview and even being susceptible to cultic and pagan ideas, uh, worldly ideas, demonic ideas that are not yours. 
Father, I just pray that you would open the eyes of all those who hear this and help them. And, um, and I pray for MacArthur that he would continue on in the faithfulness of his ministry, but, uh, but be corrected, Lord, because this may actually do damage to people, as, uh, as some other things might as well. Pray that you just be with his mind continually to grow him in the Word of God, even in his older age, Lord, to con- continue to grow in his knowledge and understanding of what you have spoken. We pray all this, Lord, for your glory and for the love of you and your people. In Jesus' name, amen.